I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you Scott Norton was the co-founder and CEO of Sir Kensington's Condiment Maker, which sold to Unilever back in 2017. Scott led Sir Kensington's for over a decade and shares his lessons learned on his entrepreneurial journey and how he's taking those lessons with him as he launches N Plus One Ventures, which will advise and invest in startups. Anyone looking for a new job this year? Or are you a company who's looking to hire great talent? If so, you might want to check out the job hiring platform, Culture Finders. I'm sure you're thinking, what's different about Culture Finders compared to the other job hiring platforms? Well, other platforms only focus on your job skills and trying to match you with as many companies as possible. What Culture Finders does different is that they uncover the preferences, personalities, unique talents, and abilities that make up each job seeker and matches them with the company that these traits best align. It's not about sending 100 jobs, but about connecting you with the right job. We know your value to companies goes beyond your resume, and it's time you find a company that sees yours. Job seekers create your free profile today at culturefinders.com. And if you're a company hiring, you get a free job posting today. That's culturefinders.com. Oh yeah, just so you guys know, Culture Finders and What Got You There is actually hiring right now. So jump on culturefinders.com to create your free profile and hopefully we'll be working together soon. Scott, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Wonderful, Sean. I'm doing great. And it's great to be on. Thanks so much. It's, it's an honor to have you on. I mean, anytime we get to learn from people who are, are doing big things, continuing to evolve and learn, and you're one of those people. So, so I feel fortunate to get to talk to you. But I would love jumping off and starting with storytelling, because I know this has been a foundational element, not only from your early days, but then what you did with Sir Kensington. And I just thought you did such an unbelievable job telling great stories throughout your time. So I would love this just to be a launching off place. And how do you think about storytelling with relation to brands. Yeah. Well, you've you've touched on a real passion point uh, of mine. And so we'll start with the fact that both of my parents were filmmakers. Uh, they worked in television and, and film in their career. And so they were both storytellers in different ways. And especially my dad, who was more of a director, was an incredible storyteller, would always read to me. And so it, it became something that was really implicit and kind of part of my blood growing up. And I, uh, you know, as I grew, I, I had a theater background. I did improvisational comedy and I did, you know, theater, theater on stage and musicals and things like that. And so um, it became a voracious reader. And so that really stuck with me in, in the creative world and in the business world. And what I've I've learned over time and kind of going from this this thing that was implicit or almost you know uh, just a habit or, or a natural reaction uh, to making sense of the world. Now having some perspective on that, I realized that how how powerful storytelling really is writ large, right? And that's a really popular phrase to use storytelling, and it's probably overused in a lot of ways. But but what what stories do is they create emotional stakes for people. They, they allow people to put themselves in the journey and in whatever narrative or whatever objective that you're trying to create. And human beings co-evolved around stories, right? And campfires. 
And stories are the way that we make sense of the world. They create collaboration with each other. Um, and they, they establish a sense of shared values for us. And so, you know, for me, when we, when we think about it from like a quote unquote brand building perspective or a business perspective, you know, stories are, stories are the engine that we, that we assign a sense of value to something. And stories are also tales that we tell about ourselves and who we are. And of course, products, services, brands are things that we essentially buy into as part of that storytelling process about ourselves. And I, I don't even want to focus it so much on like a branded product, like a bottle of ketchup, because America is a story, right? If you consider yourself American, if you have nationalism to any degree, if you think it is important to vote, that is a story that you believe in, right? That is part of your identity. It's part of your value system. And all of that has all this kind of narrative packed into it with protagonists and good guys and bad guys and fundamental human truths and ultimate resolutions and justice. You know, we, we make sense of the world through stories and the world of business and the world of, of brand building is, is essentially the same thing. So with Sir Kensington's, you know, when we started, we had what would be looked at like a unique selling proposition, right? Or even a kind of a matrix of comparison of, of facts and figures and features, right? So if they, if Heinz was high fructose corn syrup and tomato concentrate, we were using organic sugar and, uh, and whole tomatoes, crushed tomatoes, right? And so what you have there is this sort of, uh, this contrast between two products and two ingredients, but that's not really a story, right? And so when you layer on top of that, oh, let's create this character of a, an Englishman who is a food lover and an inventor and a philanthropist, and he plays the role of innovator and guide for you, the food lover, right? And he's got this these quirky elements to it. He's got this humanity, this integrity and charm. That's kind of like who you want to show up as when you go to a party, right? Or when you host a dinner party. And all of a sudden you take those, those factual kind of differences around, you know, this is the product and this is the competitor's product. And you make meaning out of it with a character like Sir Kensington's, that storytelling element is what makes it memeable. That's what makes it something that people want to tell their friends and it helps people kind of make sense of it in their own heads. Um, so, so storytelling, I think is, you know, it's a fundamental tool and a, and a powerful way to help people get things out into the world that they want to share. I love it. One thing's apparently obvious is just how thoughtful you are around different approaches. So I would love to know, let, let's hit on that, that origin story of Sir Kensington's. I would love to know how this came to be and then how thoughtful you were around story, even from the beginning. Is it something you really thought about that early on? We, we, this, we came up with a story before we made our first batch of product. So, yeah, so I was, um, it was now 12 years ago and it was beginning of 2008 and uh, a, a friend and I were, uh, were driving through Los Angeles listening to Afrobeat and we had the, the windows down, uh, you know, in, in his Volvo and he was like, you know, I have this idea that I think could be really huge and I was like, okay, like, you know, what is it? Like I hear all ideas all the time and he was like, gourmet ketchup. I was like, what? And he's like, think about it. There's a million different types of mustards, but there's only one ketchup. And uh, there's got to be space to do something better. And so that, that was like 
you know, I was really skeptical when I first heard that, but the more we started thinking about it, the more we realized, you know, whether it's organic yogurt or cage-free eggs or free-range chicken, people were demanding more from their food. And there was this sea change that was happening driven by the time, you know, everyone talks about, talked about millennials. Now everybody talks about Gen Z. Um, but there are these generational changes in tastes and proclivities for, for food and, and for people's preferences. And so, um, so we said, okay, well, you know, just in that same ilk of storytelling, you know, we could create the best ketchup in the world and the best ketchup in the world, you know, there had been companies, entrepreneurs that have tried and failed to go head to head with a brand like Heinz or in any category, for instance, that was very logical and was very based on those ingredients. And as almost to say, here's how it's better. Now we expect you to change your behavior. And so we said, well, if we were to do this, because Heinz is such a strong brand, um, we said we would have to do it the exact opposite of Heinz and do it dramatically differently. So if they are in plastic, we'll be in glass. If they are squirting, we'll be scooping. And if they are Americana, we'll be English. So what is this? Like how, how, how far could we push it, right? How far, how almost ironic could we get, right? You take the, like the lowliest of foods, ketchup, and you make it an English knight who was a philanthropist and who hosted these salons with people, luminaries from all over the world, right? Like the Davos of his time. And he wrote a treatise on Ionian chutneys and uh, the sauces of Constantinople and Istanbul on behalf of the queen and was knighted for taste and went to Oxford and Cambridge. We created this like ridiculous persona that was the, the sort of the high to the ketchup's low. And that, that was really the origin of it. And so we had created this concept of the brand and then we created sort of the label and then we did the product prototyping that followed that. Um, so it was really, it was really the story that started it all. When you're driving around LA, you, you got the top down, you got the beats going, did you have any idea or plans to start a company? So that's a great question. And I think, you know, the, the way we thought about it was let's, let's build something and get to that plateau. Let's get to that milestone and then look out and see what's the right move from here. Right. So, you know, it was never like in that 15 minute conversation, like, Oh, we can build it entire company around this and devote the next 12 years of our life to it. No, not at all. Like we, we was like, okay, this could be a fun little project for, um, and when I ultimately brought it to, uh, Mark, my, my co-founder that we really built the company together, uh, you know, we did, we didn't know it would be the next 12 years of our life, but that was how, um, we started by doing a little bit and then investing a little bit more, seeing how far that got us. And then it kind of snowballed from there. And then in 2010, that's when we said, all right, we're leaving our jobs, we're you know, investing in this, and we're going to commit to seeing where this takes us. Um, but at the beginning, we didn't know it would be a company. It was just sort of an art project. If we look back at your childhood at all, would there be any little patterns early on where we could say, you know what, I think Scott might, might be at least thinking someday to build something big? I don't know about something big, but definitely build something, yeah. you know? I mean, I, I love, uh, I, I, I love working with my hands and I love, you know, connecting people. I love bringing ideas together. So I would just spend endless hours in the treehouse working on things, you know, building their skateboard ramps, uh, started a little t-shirt company in college, taught myself screen printing. So I, I, and you know, I, I, uh, 
I grew up with Photoshop and grew up with the internet. And so like, you know, learned to code and build websites at, you know, age 12. So like, but all little things, you know, and uh, I loved kind of using these different tools and creating this craft and I would spin things up together. So that was my sort of self-education that laid the the groundwork for having something like Sir Kensington's, which is this culmination of like creative, technical, culinary, you know, leadership all coming into one. Well, I love that. You hit on culmination, right? And, and even what you were saying, the, the early days of Sir Kensington's, we were doing these little experiments, trying, continuing to go, and all of a sudden it starts to snowball. It almost seems like your, your childhood, tinkering in all these different domains, doing little experiments here and there, kind of like culminated in all of that, having just prepared you slightly more uh, for when this, this moment finally did come. And Sean, you're describing why I'm the luckiest man in the universe. Because, yeah, I get to keep t- tinkering and to do it on a bigger scale. You know, when I realized you know, I, there was a time in my life where I wanted to be a filmmaker, similar, you know, my parents were filmmakers as well and do it differently than them. But I spent, you know, a summer in an internship where I worked at a TV station and it was brutal work. I really have never worked as hard as that. We got up very early in the morning. We recorded live TV. I was doing audio. So if I left someone's mic on, I'd get yelled at, you know, and I was 18 at the time. And I would shoot things and I would literally edit, you know, into the night and then, you know, put the put the gold master tape for them to then air the next day. Right. I would have these marathon days. Um, I lost like 10 or 15 pounds. I, you know, I, I got a fifty dollar a week stipend that I lived off during that that summer. And um what I learned coming out of that was that if you're a creative and if you're a creator, Everything creative happens within an economic context. And if you don't control that economic context and you don't grapple with that economic context and own it for yourself, then that economic context is going to own you, right? And so, you know, on one hand, on one side, there's this idea of an artist, right, who is a creative that builds things for themselves. And on the other side, you know, people get written off for being a hack, that just builds things for other people or just will kowtow to whatever the demands of the market are. And my philosophy is how do you bring these two together in what I would call the role of a craftsman or a craftsperson, right? So you are building things for yourself that have a message to their work and that help make sense of the world, right? And help build the world that you want to make, right? That is that artist activist stance. But then you're also doing things a bit as a hack, right? You're creating the mayo that people are willing to pay for with the ingredients that they are looking for in the stores where they shop, right? And make that attainable. And if you bring those two things together in that role of the craftsperson, that's where I think you get the best of both worlds. And that's what I, that's my creative philosophy is creation in an economic context and the role of, of the craftsperson. I'm viewing it as this beautiful marriage between commerce and creativity here and, and the blend of those two together. Uh, I, I don't know. I feel like most creatives wouldn't, wouldn't have this approach. So I'm wondering what was so foundational for you to even come to this realization? Um, well, so I think you know, I grew up in Silicon Valley, and um, which, is, which has changed a tremendous amount. But I think you know that was a place of you know, to quote the famous like Paul Graham book, like hackers and painters, right? That was the birth of the Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters and the hippie movement. Um, People that were graduating from, you know, Stanford and Berkeley or dropping out of college and creating 
the first computer networks, the first PCs, uh, all of those things. And so there was kind of like a weirdness and like a fundamentally like creative, like hacker element that then got married with global capitalism into the Silicon Valley that we know today um, for a lot of good and also for a lot of ill, right? By no means is it, you know, by no means is everyone an artist, a creative, a craftsman, right? Or just, or just a hack. Um, but I think like seeing people bring ideas to life, right? That was, that were both creative and technical and build livelihoods around that um, and create and shape cultures around that. That was very inspiring to me. I mean, I'm intrigued about that because early on you, you can have these great ideas, but, but let's be serious. Everything's got to come down to execution. And, yeah. and, and so I'm wondering how you just like for a lot of entrepreneurs that that start they've got the they've got the great idea new one every single week right but but then how does execution start taking place so i'm even wondering early days you said you you start kind of just trying out little things what was that execution process like in, in terms of blending that creative but also the commerce side of things as well yeah so i think two things so one is it's got to start with an mvp um a minimum viable product and it's got to start with prototyping Right. So it's like from an action oriented standpoint, how do you just go? Right. How do you just build the the minimum thing that it's going to allow you to execute on creating a product or, you know, getting a basic marketing campaign out there? And in the beginning, you know, we had some moments of brilliance, but most of the stuff that we created, it, like marketing communications, was totally ineffective and creatively not even that interesting. Um, but the other piece of it, which is related to that, is about tenacity and never quitting that's like the key actually is never quit uh when you have the tenacity and the resilience and you just don't take no for an answer and you just don't quit and you learn from that prototyping you learn from that mvp you get one percent better every week at the execution and then i don't i can't do the compounding math in my head but if you're getting one percent better at execution every week after three years, after five years, you're pretty damn good at executing. And you've put these, these, these structures in place. And by the way, of course, another key part about execution, you know, as the founder is that like, you want to quickly get to the point where you have specialists that are, that have talents and gifts to give in those executional areas that may not be your strong suit as an individual. Um, so maybe it's three things. So it's one prototype and start small and go Two, it's resilience, tenacity, compounding of that executional excellence. And then three, getting talented people who love their work and, and are specialists in that type of execution into the seats so that they can contribute. We're going to talk a lot about team building here. Uh, you mentioned just the, the 1% better. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the English racing team. Uh, they brought our director in performance in, and his sole focus was developing his team 1% better each day. So from the, the pillows they slept on, the magic. That's where this concept came from, yeah. Yes. When you say racing, do you mean um, track, track and field? Uh, or? Bike racing. There, I don't, bike I, racing. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if that's a technical term, but bike like, racing. Tour de France esque. No. When's the last time the English won the Tour de France, though? So this was the funny thing. It, it was 1905. Then he came in, so it had been like a hundred years, and then they won three out of the next four, three out of the next oh, five. I think his name was Sir Kensington. I, I, I'm kidding. I, I, I'm kidding. Of course, I'm I was going to say the most interesting man in the world. All right, this, this, makes this sense. is the lore, right? This is you're allowed to kind of plug Sir Kensington's anywhere in between 1860 and 1920 in England, and he like has a role there. So yeah, yeah, Sir Kensington was part of that racing team, you know. 
he invented the he, legend has it he actually won the Tour de France on a penny farthing, which is one of those bicycles that has the giant front wheel. Yep. Yeah. Company building one oh one oh one right here, right? Just pl- yeah. plugging the product, getting the name recognition out there at yeah, all times. Exactly. No, yeah, I, I absolutely love it. Team. You mentioned the the tenacity, the the willingness never to quit. How, especially because I know you, you had a co-founder and multiple co- co-founders early on, how was that dynamic in that relationship when you're trying, 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 things just are failing, they don't seem like they're going. How do you guys maintain a level head to understand you need to continue to be persistent here? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I think like, you know, it's, 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 very, it's interesting and it's also tough at the beginning of any project because you don't know what it's going to be. And it could either be something that's like marvelous and fantastic and worthy of everyone, everyone's kind of full dedication for the decade or more, or it could be something that just simply fizzles and fails and, you know, maybe wasn't a great investment of people's time. Though I would argue you would learn a lot from that process and I think it would be a good investment of time. So I think at the beginning, you know, with, with, with co-founders, it's a really hard process to determine like what is what should everyone's role be what should everyone's level of commitment be and level of kind of ownership and remuneration i mean that's a that's a that's a really hard thing to figure out um and then in terms of the the tenacity and the commitment you know everyone has a different philosophy around this but you know you once you commit to something you commit to it right and and you commit to it till till the end. And I think that was something that my dad really instilled in me. And, you know, I, from my boy scouting experience and I'm an Eagle scout, you know, that sort of went through that process and, and felt like the rise of, of learning and the rise of leadership and the rise of like my service projects, you know, growing up that taught me that like, it really pays dividends when you don't quit at something. And, um, and so, you know, we, as long as we had a little bit of cash in the bank, we never quit at Sir Kensington's, um, even even when it got really hard. But this was something that we knew that we wanted to take until the end, um, or you know, and and uh, uh, so th- we just stayed dedicated to it. And I think you know, on the piece of the co-founders too, related to that is like, I think as a solo founder, we wouldn't have, definitely wouldn't have worked out. And so. The key there is the saying that there is no such thing as a founder, only co-founders, and maybe that's true, maybe it's not. For me, it's definitely true. I need someone to be the balloon to my string, right, or the string to my balloon to lift me up and to be optimistic and to be creative when I don't see that vision. And on the flip side, I, you know, I'm really happy to be, you know. A, a, a person that that provides that kind of buoyancy and optimism and also has someone that is grounding me in reality, you know, to be that string. So um, I think that that partnership is, is really crucial. And I would encourage people to, you know, even they have a co-founder and they feel the relationship is good. How can you really deepen that and almost coach that relationship so that it is just a tremendous source of strength and energy for the two of you, um, to get your work done and also to model relationship management to the team. Did you do anything to deepen your relationship with your co-founder? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so besides from just like being in the trenches and, and being together, building this, we actually did, we worked with a coach starting in 2016, uh, who was really just phenomenal, was very helpful for our relationship. I would say transformative to the business too. Um, 
And we did sessions individually, like personal coaching. And then we also did sessions, the three of us, where we could work through issues and, and talk about things and, and learn about each other, right? Um, exercises around our personality types, the way that we would attack problems, what was important to us. So we created a formal forum um, for, for d- deepening that relationship and um, making it more healthy. It's incredible what a great coach can do. And when communication starts and there's some more transparency there, I'm wondering, you said you started working with a coach in 2016. Would you have started with a coach earlier knowing what you know now? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, uh, it, you know, the, I would have. And, and the it's very interesting because I, I think it's generational. I also think it's something that has been gathering a lot of steam. But like I feel like the the need and the demand for coaching has just shot through the roof. And it was maybe something that was, it was like less common or only common amongst like very senior executives or almost seen as like a point of weakness if you needed a coach. But now I see people, every, every person I talked to was like, yeah, like what coach should I use? Introduce me to a coach. You know, how can I go about finding the right coach? Um, so I think that coaching is here to stay. And I think it's, uh, I think it's a very healthy part of the of the startup world and for anyone in an entrepreneurial position. You were mentioning just kind of that relationship with the co-founder and we each have our own strengths. Uh, I'm wondering, you've obviously been through the trenches. You're able to assess your own strengths now, what your comparative advantage is. What do you think was your greatest strength or one of them that you just brought to the team? Oh, good question. Um, talk about my strengths. I, uh, I, you know, I'm filled with so much self-doubt and, and, and questions. So I have to give myself some grace here though. Um, I am, I am a good storyteller. So that is something that I, I naturally see the world in terms of the potential and the possibility of what could be. And I'm, I'm a good storyteller in terms of how do you have a, how do you have a compelling vision for that and then bring people into what that vision is. Um, that's one of my strengths. Another one of my strengths, which is very much related to that is, you know, I have the saying that like opportunity, it's a lot easier for opportunities. It's a lot easier to go through the side door than it is to go through the front door because everybody else is trying to go through the front door. So another strength of mine is I'm pretty good at reframing problems and thinking about creative or uncommon solutions that other people wouldn't, you know, kind of go for because I have this natural contrarian, if they're going to zig, I'm going to zag approach that just, you know, my default starting point for solving a problem is, well, let's start by doing the opposite of what everyone else does. Because if everyone else is doing that, it's probably too crowded of a trade, right? And so where can I go? You know, where can I stretch? Um, The other thing that I'm a little bit almost like, I realize I'm a little bit like freakish at this is, and someone, someone gave me this compliment once as they were like, Scott, I've never met anyone who has their entire Rolodex of everyone they've ever met in their head at all times. And so a lot of people will go to a party, have a conversation with someone, you know, learn about what they do or who they are, and then kind of like never think about them again. Whereas I'm like, every person I meet, I'm like, oh, okay. And I like file that away. And then like three weeks later, I'm like, oh, you should talk to so-and-so. And uh, that is definitely a skill of mine too. So I see myself as like a bridge builder and a connector. And, um, and I love putting like-minded people together. 
I love this. We're going to dive into the, the contrarian thinking because because I love that topic. I'd love to even think about how how your brain works through some of those problems to to get people who aren't quite the contrarian thinkers to think like that. Uh, I am wondering though. Uh, you mentioned having the, the Rolodex in your head. When or, or maybe you didn't discover this until recently, but one of the things is we discover more about ourselves and we uncover something that, you know what, this might be a strength. So I'm wondering, once you do uncover one of those strengths, how do you tap into it a bit more? Yeah, good question. Um, well, finding places that you can apply that skill so that you can practice it is definitely a big piece of it. Because actually, like, I've gotten great advice that, you know, they, somebody said, Scott instead of trying to turn your weaknesses into strengths, neutralize your weaknesses, but turn your strengths into superpowers, right? So be to put, find yourself in roles where your job is to give your gifts and your job is to practice those strengths and those strengths get, get opportunities to shine versus putting yourself in a role where you're a round peg in a square hole. And then the second thing is actually develop you know, systems, playbooks, and tools that actually allow you to like, allow you to develop those strengths, right? And so whether that is your own personal database and CRM, right? And note-taking in terms of that Rolodex or in the storytelling piece, you know, I have, I keep a, a, um, a list of great leadership writing and great examples of storytelling as well as narrative structures, so famously, like Kurt Vonnegut has a great YouTube video um, about the the sort of the fundamental narrative structures. There are other, whether it's like example um, sales decks or Joseph Campbell's Heroes Cycle, which is sort of the the preeminent storytelling framework. You know, if you're a good storyteller and you say, "Oh, well, here's how the greats have done it over time. Let me learn their techniques and then play a little bit of jazz with that and mix and match that." all of a sudden you can take these like instinctual strengths and turn them into superpowers through like the learning that other people have done. So I'd say be in a role where you can give your gifts and ask yourself, how can I develop tools that will allow me to strengthen these even further? So, so much to unpack here. Uh, you, you made the jazz reference. If you're ever looking for some interesting jazz read, there's a great jazz musician and teacher, uh, Kenny Werner. He wrote this book, Effortless, Effortless Mastery. Uh, that that kind of talks yeah, about the, the authentic self and then how you can think it through uh, as a great jazz musician. And I, I'm really intrigued about you saying your job is to give your gifts. So I'm wondering early on, especially early on in your career, when you're still figuring out who you are, what your authentic self is. And I love that you mentioned kind of the strength gets top, built on top of strength for superpowers. So then how do you, as you evolve throughout your career, feel comfortable that, you know what, this is who I am, even if this is divergent and different, but when I embrace this, like this turns into a superpower. I'm trying to figure, I, I get a lot of questions from young listeners who are like, these are my strengths. This is what I do really well. But even yeah. in the setting I'm in currently, like I almost feel like people would be like, that's a strength. But, and they, 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 they feel scared to let their true self shine through. Uh-huh. Well, maybe they're in a case where they're around pegging a square hole, yeah. right? Maybe they find a, need to find a new, a new place to give those gifts. At the same time, you need to do things that push you and develop your skills in other areas, like selling. Like I was a terrible salesperson at the beginning of Sir Kensington's, but you realize that like as an entrepreneur, your entrepreneurs should actually just be called salespeople, right? Like you were just selling all the time, right? You're selling to yourself, you're selling to prospective employees, you're selling to customers, you're selling to investors, 
right? It is you're you're just and which is why that storytelling is so important. And what is selling? You know, selling is about grit and it's about tenacity. Selling is also about being able to take no over and over and over again. And most of the time, they're not even no's. It's just people ghosting you. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to break all the social norms in order to get your thing out there. Because, like, that that is the crazy thing about, about selling is you have to take everything you know about socializing with people and kind of throw it out the window because you just can't take no for an answer. Um, and at the same time, you have to take everything you know about socializing and practice it, right? Because it's about relationship building, Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people, how to build reciprocity, how to make people feel like you're there and you're present and you're empathetic with them and to really be empathetic with them. So you do need to, to push yourself and you need to learn new skills and apply those the gifts you have to those skills. Um, but, you know, the other thing I would say is like, it's very, you know, it's hard to rush. You know, I, I, I'm still, I would call myself a young man and I'm really just even beginning to develop these strengths, Right. And, you know, I was quite precocious at the age of 18 or at the age of 21 into like what I thought I was capable of. I had no idea, you know, and you just don't know what you don't know at that age. And you need repetition to practice those strengths and to experience the pain of growing through your weaknesses or neutralizing those weaknesses. Um, So I think, you know, surround yourself with people that you think you can learn from, find roles where you can apply those gifts and give those gifts and just keep, keep pushing. Yeah. And then the other thing I I would say is also have a side hustle, right? So if you're in a job or you're in a role where you're just like, you know, I just cannot apply the kind of creativity, you know, you know, we've never been in a better time with a creator economy, with the power of Shopify or universe, right? With the power of um, Patreon or Kickstarter or any of these things, Substack, you know, you can spin up a place where you can give your gifts and attract a thousand true fans. I love that component, right? We, I was asking the question around what if people aren't able to let their authentic self shine through, let their creative endeavor sparkle and perfect time, right? Side hustle. You can try it out, small little experiments, see if this is something you can actually build and grow and do. So I absolutely love that. Love that point. You mentioned about not being in a rush at times, and the model I kind of use for this is we need to slow down to speed up because sometimes like you slow down early on, and then long term those fat tails they, they turn to speed up in the long term. How do you do that consistently, right? Like that zoom in, zoom out, where you can see it thirty thousand feet to get the, the big picture, but then you can dive in on the details. I mean, I I don't think that I'm actually that good at it. You know, I definitely feel impatience all the time, right? And so my my advice is more like it's a more like past looking like, okay, if you, if you feel like you're not moving fast enough, I know that feeling, but that feeling might not necessarily go away. Um, having a, a passion for the journey rather than the reward is a key part of, of going slow to go fast. Right. So part of craftsmanship is a sense of flow of creative flow. So if you're not in a, in a place of creative flow when you're doing your work, then you are thinking about, okay, how do I shortcut this? How do I get to the answer? How do I get to the results? But the definition of play is activity where you're not focused on an outcome, right? And flow and play and craftsmanship and creative work. Now, don't get me wrong. Creative work is work. And it takes a lot to overcome the resistance to sit down and do that creative work. But once you're in that state of creative flow, that is 
that is that moment where the journey is the reward and you're experiencing that. So pay attention to the things that are that create a sense of creative flow for you and uh, and and have the rigor to apply yourself to to overcome that resistance and get in those places of creative flow. And if you're not familiar with this concept of resistance, um, the readers aren't. Sean, have you read The War of Art? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Stephen Pressfield's book. Exactly. So that would be, you know, I think that that's a seminal book in terms of that, you know, that both creative confidence and also the creative rigor that it takes to, to slow down, to speed up. No, I love that. That's a great book as well. One thing I'm intrigued is you have to have a passion for the journey. Uh, what you just said, I 100% agree with that. And I would love to know then is here you've spent a decade plus build this fantastic business ended up selling it, have a very successful exit. I, I know you can't talk about the numbers, um, but just very, very fortunate, the outcome there. How is that process then when you've spent a decade building something, transitioning on from that? You know, we, we, we raise money in the, in the very beginning, right? And so when you raise money from investors, you know that at some point they're going to have to see that money back again. Mm-hmm. And so you have you have a lot of time to process these things, right? You have a lot of time to process, okay, at some point, this company is going to be more valuable to someone else than it will be to me. At some point, I'm going to want to change into my next adventure, which is where I'm at now, right? Last four months ago, I stepped away from, from Sir Kensington's after 10 years, right? And that, that was, I'm still connected to it, obviously, but it is, you know, mostly in my rear view mirror. Um, and so you have, you know, yes, those are big moments and those are big transitions, but you also have time to process these things ahead of time. And, um, and so, so I would say that, that I'm, I've been very fortunate and very lucky that it's happened with with enough almost like slowness or enough consideration that I've been ready for these points of change, whether it's a transaction or whether it's a role change. Um, and I've been really lucky to to spend a little bit of time visioning and thinking about what is it that I want out of you know this next phase of my life. Um, so I think that, that that visioning is is an important activity to 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 go through and to do. And then, you know, going back to the improv piece, like life cannot be planned and it just life comes at you, right? It's like surfing. You know, you get out there and sometimes they're waves, sometimes they're not, sometimes they're perfect. Most of the time they're either too small or they're throwing you left and right. Sometimes it's cold, sometimes it's hot, sometimes there's more people out there. Sometimes you go out there, but but do you ever regret getting out there on a surfboard? No. No matter what happens, you never regret getting out there, right? You never regret paddling around. You never regret being being enwrapped in the majesty of nature, right? And separating yourself from the earth, literally. You never regret that. And that's, I think, what entrepreneurship is. And that's that's what, what life is, is having uh, the ability to improvise as you go along and see what the world throws at you and enjoy that process, that my improv background, I mean, is just tr- tremendous. Like, it, you know, and people talk about imposter syndrome. I mean, as an improv actor, you you quickly sort of get on the other side of that, and you find yourself in situations, in business situations, and you think, okay, this suit I'm wearing or these clothes, right? It's a costume, right? The words that I'm choosing, you know, there's a script and it's a story. And in, in a way, like when you turn everything into improv, it brings a certain amount of levity and amount of like humor to it that that helps that helps me get through life and and 
think about that unknown that life throws you. I have no no background in improv. There is a small little book. I'm pretty sure it's called Impro, which has an interesting. It, it's written by an improv expert. Uh, yeah, talks Keith a, Johnstone. Yeah, yeah, have yeah. You, have you read that? Yeah, I, I did pick it up. It's kind of like an old weathered book. Oh my but. god, I find it impenetrable. <laughs> I've had it completely. I've tried to pick. I've tried. To, I've had that book for 15 years, and I've tried to read that book you know, over and over again. And I can't, I can't get through it. I'm pretty sure there was three chapters. Uh, I need to go back. This was probably two plus years ago that I thought shed some good light. And maybe just because I don't have an improv background, um, you know, kind of someone like reveals that curtain for you and it's, Oh, that's one of those. I, I was unaware of that. So maybe that, maybe that could be the reason. Yeah. One thing you, you mentioned a minute ago is just a, a vision of what you want. And as you're transitioning now into this entirely new chapter, how much thought and, and how much are you focusing on that vision? I'm, I'm asking because I, I think I'm a big fan of Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's investing partner, you know, invert. And he thinks about all the things he doesn't want. I, I'd just be curious to hear what your process is like. Yeah. You know, my, my visioning process, it starts by thinking, you know, very much with my wife, um, you know, who's obviously my soulmate, my life partner, and we've got two kids now. So I don't think just as an individual, but we think as a, you know, as a family and, um, you know, I and we start very wide, right? So it's this question of, okay, if we can, if we are going to start a new chapter, I mean, you know, both of our kids, you know, we're born in Hong Kong. Do we want to move to Hong Kong? Do we want to move to Singapore? Do we ever want to live in Europe? Is the time for that now, right? So we narrowed down from like all these cities to then end up in LA, right? And try it on. And then now, of course, what neighborhood do we want to be in here? That's a whole nother process. And then in terms of like, you know, professionally, I start, you know, with all these different options and a lot of it for me, I narrow it down in the form of that visioning is, is useful to say like, well, what gives me energy? What gives me oxygen? What are the gifts I want to give? But also I'm a very conversational person. So I sort out a lot of these things through just having dozens and dozens of calls constantly with people that are in these various worlds where I'm like, do I want to be in this world? Can you educate me about this? You know, talking through these concepts. And so that that process of conversation and reflection kind of guides me to, you know, what it is that I want. And right now I feel like I'm being pulled with an invisible tractor beam towards something. And that's a really good feeling, you know. If it, it, yeah, and and I think like on the on the storytelling piece, I also realize that I'm probably rationalizing a lot in my own head about what is the right next step for me. Um, but what I hear, you know, whatever I hear, I'm kind of weaving into this this narrative, this vision, and this identity that like I, you know, I loved the role that I played at Sir Kensington's, and both as a leader, but also as kind of a keeper of the vision and as a coach, right. And co-founder. And I realized that like, you know, if I had this, this, this impact you know, on this company and these people and, and this market, what, what if I can have a similar impact, maybe smaller, but similar type of work across 10 companies or 20 companies. And so the, the role of being an investor, the role of counseling and accelerating entrepreneurs and their business and sort of giving those gifts, um, where I can plug in and, and where it makes sense for me, that is something that I feel like I'm pulled to with this invisible tractor beam. And so right now I'm trying to figure out the best platform to do that on and the best way to do that on. Um, but I know that I know that that's the next step for me. Yeah, much better to have that internal pull than have a John Deere just pushing you to- towards different things that, that... I never had that push, yeah. you know? I never had that John Deere push. Yeah. <laughs> 
good, good one not to have. I, I yeah. am curious though, because earlier you mentioned about the Rolodex and I'm thinking how this all comes together, right? You mentioned bouncing off ideas. So I think about idea generation, pl playing things through, having a Rolodex to, to connect the pieces. And then also that final component of just the internal team, who are the people you're surrounding with? And so I'm wondering how that all comes together and we can just think about it through company building. The, the importance of people, essentially, oh, yeah. is what this is rooted in. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, look, team and talent is really everything. You know, that, that, is, that, is, that is ultimately what it's all about. All the results, right? No matter how good the ideas are, the, the execution, or even to come up with good ideas, right? You, I think that's the most powerful skill that an entrepreneur can have is create a culture that people want to come and live their purpose and the purpose of the company together and to give their gifts and to be, you know, part of that culture and then bring, you know, other people into that culture as well. Um, so, you know, creating a team and talent environment where you know what you stand for as a company and as, as individuals, you know, having a set of values that are that are that are standard, but are interpreted and sort of celebrated and modeled in slightly different ways by the team. Um, I mean, I mean, ultimately, that that's what it's all about, and that that defines great organizations, and that defines whether organizations succeed or or fail, right? Or they endure, or they don't endure, is the the power and the quality of that team. Yeah, I'm a believer as well that, that it is all about the people. And a minute ago, you were mentioning your, your role with Sir Kensington's. A lot of times it was a coach. I'm wondering, do you have any specific examples what you did to help develop that culture and really make sure values are ingrained in the actions of the company? So we, at first, we were not deliberate about this. And it was almost more implicit. And then we we learned actually to the point of like systems that it was possible to write culture down, right? That's not the only thing you need to do in order to create culture. But actually, when you write things down, you put words around things, it goes a long way. And so what we did and what I would, would encourage really everyone to do if they haven't already done this, you know, every leader, every member of an organization is it can't just be like top down or from one specific source. These values, they have to be, they have to be rooted in listening and in understanding what your team cares about and basically the intersection between what your market and your customers care about and what you as a team care about, right? And that intersection point um, ultimately becomes what you need to stand for and what needs to be your onlyness as an organization. And so we did a listening exercises and focus groups and, and surveys in 2015 to to get everyone's sort of perspective on why they chose to work here, why, you know, why they love what they do, how we can make ourselves stronger, and what is it that that they believe that Sir Kensington's was all about, what it stood for. And what I it was interesting because I, I actually had people force rank what they cared about in order to get to the values. And so, you know, because of course people will be like, yeah, like I, you know, we want to be more sustainable and we want this to be a place where people can advance quickly. It's a meritocracy and we want to create the best tasting culinary products, right? It's easy to just be like, yeah, we want to do these 16 things. But it was, it was actually really fun and really telling to get people to force rank those, to talk about, okay, really, who are we and what do we care about? And then what are the things that are like nice to have, but they're not in that inner circle. Um, 
that that was a really telling exercise. And then once you've got that, invest a little bit of time into making it poetic and catchy and weaving it into a story and then repeat, 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 right? Talk about your decisions that you make as a leader through the lens of those values. Give people formal and informal awards and recognition for practicing those values. Recognize when those values are challenged. Put those values and that vision in your job descriptions when you send out those job descriptions for hiring as a company. Because you want people to like join the company, yes, because they're going to advance in their career, but really you want missionaries over mercenaries who 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 love what what it is they're about to join. So listening, creation and formation of what that kind of the tenets of those culture is, and then where it really comes to life is how you actually practice based on what you've defined your values and your culture being. I absolutely love this. You mentioned the systems. I would love, do you have any other examples of strict practices you guys used or even exercises? This could have been about writing deep thoughts or anything like that, or even communication, anything that you guys did that you just thought was, was really impactful. Yeah. So, um, we, we would, we train people, you know, around what we call our, our business philosophy, which was very much like a, a cultural philosophy, and one of the one of the places that we spent a lot of time and developed a system around was in feedback and in really interpersonal communications, crucial conversations that were quite high stakes. And so, it was really generated by the coach that that Mark and I worked with, who also did some work with the organization um, to, that we call like the 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 wheel of crucial communication. And so when you want to confront someone, right, when you're, when you're feeling like, okay, something is not going as planned or I need to have a difficult conversation with someone, you know, what a lot of people will do is they'll go in and they'll say, you know, you did this wrong and you need to fix it or I'm mad and I don't know what to do about it, right? And they sort of bounce around all these different, you know, areas, emotions, accusations, requests. And so what this is, is a map of how do you have, what is a map to having one of these crucial conversations? And first, you start with what are the facts? So what actually happened, right? There's sort of unassailable facts that you then align with the other person on. Did you see what I see? Did this actually happen? And then to how am I feeling about it, right? So what are the actual raw emotions that I'm feeling about it, you know, and sadness, anger, uh, happiness, and fear, you know, those are the base emotions that you want to really use those words. And of course, there's things like anxiety and frustration that are linked to that. Um, elation too. I mean, this is not just for negative things, it's for positive things as well. Um, and then, and then third, you know, what is my, what is my judgment from that? So how do I, you know, does that make me think, oh, you know, that seeing those typos over and over again in your emails make me think that you, you're not applying yourself to the degree that you used to in your work, right? And that is, that is the first time in the conversation where it's, it's, you know, something that is basically up for debate, right? You're positing something. It's still an I statement. You're positing something that then becomes the topic of conversation. Uh, and then what do you, next, what do you want from that person, right? So what do you want to change, 
for the organization or for you or for your relationship? What's your request? And then finally, what is your, your offering? How are you going to help the situation? What are you offering to do um, in order to address these situations in the future? So data, emotions, judgments, your wants, and then your, your offering, right? Or your, which, how you're going to show up and help the situation. Those five steps to these crucial conversations are a system for um, having stronger relationships and being able to authentically communicate with people. This is awesome. I'm loving this. This is incredibly helpful for anyone. I'll send you a graphic. Yeah, I would lo- I'd love that. <laughs> Maybe Sir Kensington can be right in the middle there. I, I am wondering now, or-, or even previously, what you did such a good job of in terms of creating such a, a high leverage team. You-, you had a pretty small team when you guys were acquired that had massive yeah. disruption. So I-, I always think about developing the-, the internal team. Anything else that you just had such high leverage impact per employee? When you say anything else, we mean anything else. Well, I, so, I mean, I, we, we've seen some numbers of what you were acquired at with around 30 employees. And that's just, to me, incredibly impressive. So I view that as each individual employee had massive leverage in the impact they had in their individual role. And so I'm wondering, right. a lot of companies have too much bloat. They, they have too many employees not really doing enough. And so I'm wondering what, you, what else you did to make sure yeah. each person is generating so much. Yeah, we probably we probably understaffed, uh, you know, significantly. But I think, um, you know, we we it's it's you know you you want you want to find people that that take ownership and make this sort of challenge their own proactively, right? And that that find the things in the organization like the the tasks that that need to be done or the strategies that you even as a leader, as a founder are almost blind to, but they kind of find them and see them. They flow to them. They show you the importance of them and, and, and work on them. And so, you know, I, I think we, we had a dedication to really hiring around that proactivity and, and we were just very fortunate to have a very high leverage team. Um, and I think, you know, the, the other thing that we, we did was we focused a lot on execution and specifically sales execution because in quote unquote like brand building, right? There's a lot of emphasis that's put on equity and ephemera and the storytelling, which is which is great and it's important, but it's actually you know it needs to be backed up with a commercial dedication and reality for spending close to the register, winning at the register, winning on shelf, um, really having an expertise and a mastery around those commercial relationships and sales. And so I think that we were we probably leaned in that direction as an organization. Great. Yeah, no, I, I know that was a broad, wide question. Um, very tough to answer. So, so I appreciate you just giving some, some better perspective there uh, and something that I just really admire what you guys were able to do. Now, now you're transitioning on to investor. And I love when builders become investors as opposed to just starting out investors because you understand what it's like in the trenches. I would love to know through your lens now what you're looking for, what, what boxes need to be checked when you're considering a potential investment. Yeah, um, good question. So what I get most excited about is businesses that have the potential to change culture. That, that's what really is exciting to me. And I, we could talk a lot about the financial criteria and profitability and, and all of that. But what's most exciting to me is businesses that have a view of, of a little bit about how the world is broken and how when they are successful in five or 10 years time, 
the world looks different and that is fixed. And that, that I believe can be done through a cultural shift. And that's a cultural shift in terms of an external brand culture, right? The way that people interact with a certain product or again, the stories that they tell about themselves in a category or um, how they relate to each other, right? And I'll take an example, right? So moving, for instance, towards like plant-based milks, you know, like an Oatly, which is an, an excellent, amazing company, a great example that probably everyone uses. But Oatly is an example of you take something that four years ago or five years ago, if you had said oat milk, you're like, oh my, that like sounds like something that's not even cool enough for my grandma to drink, right? <laughs> Some like medicinal, watery, gross, like baby food. And what Oatly was able to do from an external brand culture perspective is to say, we're going to make this creative and wacky and cool and out there. And their, their, their strategy in the U.S. was to get into the most bleeding edge, the coolest coffee shops and train and have their former baristas train baristas on the microfoamability to be to make cappuccinos, right? And um, cortados, right? And oat-based coffee drinks in the sort of hipster capital cities of America. That is a culture changing move, right? That gets people away from high carbon industries like dairy production, uh, cholesterol, right? Off of that and onto um, a better kind of plant-based culture and plant-based future. That's a great example of a business that can change culture and have that impact with something that is really like almost uncool to begin with, but they put this incredible wrapper on it. And then the other piece of culture, the other cultural change is internal brand culture. So businesses that have a specific kind of operating framework, a, a very strong culture about their, their values, what they believe in, and the change that they want to see in the world from a leadership perspective, from the inside out. Those two things together is when you really have magic, right? Where you have people internally that are, that that have their own very specific operating framework and their own belief and purpose around the change that they're creating. And then they also have this creative culture changing um, strategy that, that actually allows you know, people to see more value in the product and easily step into the cultural change that that, that, that company is, is, is pushing for. Um, I think a great example of this is a, a, a recently launched company that I invested in called Omsom, which makes these incredible Asian meal starters. So they've done uh, Southeast Asian meal starters and, and they've now done East Asian meal starters and they'll do more. Uh, but in terms of the, the sourcing of those ingredients, the authenticity and representation around the chefs who are actually behind that, um, the way that these are creatively positioned and the amount of um, creativity that they can inspire in the kitchen and the, and the, the heart forward leadership that the two co-founders have, this is a great example of a business that has the potential to make big cultural change out there and also will be kind of a cultural beacon in terms of internal brand culture as well. So those are the, those are the businesses that are most exciting for me. Um, and, you know, I also, I definitely look for businesses that are staffed with people with executional excellence and that have sustainable economics and good, you know, margin profitability because, you know, talking about, as we went in the beginning of this conversation, about everything creative happens in an economic context. If you don't have the, the profitability and if you don't have the, um, the economic sustainability of your enterprise, 
then you're ultimately just beholden to the whims of other backers and investors and underwriters. But you can, but if you have that sustainability, then you've got truly that cultural engine to grow and to make that influence. So those are the businesses that are most exciting for me. And I think in the next 10 years, you know, the whole world of consumer, quote unquote, both goods and services will continue to be upended. Obviously, COVID and the e-commerce, you know, great leap forward of 2020 will, um, will leave a mark for the next 10 years to come and was this incredible acceleration. And also on the culture front, you know, thankfully and encouragingly, young people and really, you know, populations, citizens, call them consumers everywhere, are now asking the questions and demanding more about the companies that they're buying from are they making a positive or a negative contribution to the environment? Are they making a positive or a negative contribution to society, equity, diversity, inclusion, belonging, representation, right? These human values that for many decades were divor divorced from businesses and high growth businesses. Now we're seeing a transparency and an enrollment um, that comes from businesses that embrace those things. Purpose-driven business is a paradox. Don't get me wrong. It's very hard to get right. And there's a lot of greenwashing, pinkwashing, wokewashing, you name it. But I'm also excited to get in in with businesses, you know, not necessarily perfect businesses, right? Because because there's no one out there that's totally pure, but businesses that have an ethical point of view on those pieces of economic or of economic inclusion, um, social inclusion, and environmental sustainability. Scott, one thing I just appreciate so much is how deep of a thinker you are. Yeah, it's very apparent. You've put a lot of time, energy, effort. It gets in my way all the time, though, Sean. I'm, I'm envious of the people that can just go, 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 you know. But I, you know, I tend to just wax poetic on things. Play to your strengths, right? Well, one, one thing I appreciate about the deep thinking is I just view it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but you just seem to have a beginner's mind. And even a lot of the things that we hit on throughout this last hour here, some of the books you've read, some of the lessons you've learned, mentors you've acquired, things like that, I feel like it starts with that beginner's mind. So, so I'm wondering, throughout your time, I, I know you've mentioned a few, are there any other learning modalities or, or books you've consumed or lessons that you just feel were very impactful, impactful for you? So I'm absolutely a, a learn-it-all, not a know-it-all, at my best, at least. You know, um, And if you've seen me being a know-it-all, then call me out on it. So for me, the travel is the big one. So I read voraciously. I'm a vor I read, you know, um, like last year, I probably read 20 books. I mean, I'm sure people read more than me, but I, I love to read. I read a lot. Um, and I retain a lot from that. But for me, what really, you know, that beginner's mindset and that just this constant recognition that you don't know what you don't know, and you're just on like the tip of the iceberg of the human experience, right? And that the future is unformed and there's so many different experiences that people have. Travel for me is what did that. So, you know, I... Um, I got this internship in, in, when I was 19 to go and make a documentary film for a social entrepreneur in India. And that was my first trip to Asia. And I got off the plane in India and I was hit with this wall of humid heat in Chennai in South India. And I got in a car, a taxi that, you know, just was honking and speeding along the highway an hour and a half to where I was staying. 
and I was seeing, you know, motorcycles whipped by me and people, you know, in saris carrying um, bricks and, and earth on their head, you know, and cows and bullock carts in the street. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like I have been living in a bubble. And then this, this one hour car ride, one and a half hour car ride that I thought I was going to like crash and die. And then I survived it. I was like, oh, this, this is what I'm wired for. Like I need to be shot into space more often. And so, you know, I, I, uh, I studied abroad and in Hong Kong. And at the end of that, I ended up getting a special permission to take a train to Tibet and, you know, went to, went through, went through Tibet I uh, worked in Tokyo, um, which was very, very different and very, very foreign from my experience, you know, in, in the States, obviously, as my first job at a college. And then in 2010, my friend and I, we traveled around Asia on folding bicycles for 10 months. And we went to 23 different countries, over 100 cities, um, experiencing what we called the extremes of experience. So I was, I was robbed by the police in Kazakhstan. I went to a, a nightclub with Mongolian mining magnates. Um, uh, was in Syria. Uh, had some incredible experiences in Syria a year before the civil war. Uh, that was a beautiful, warm, incredible country with amazing people. That was, it's been such a travesty to see what's happened there. But we had these extremes of experience, and like you realize from that, like you don't know what you don't know, um, and that that really has built my perspective. I love it. We, we, I, I could share or hear some of these stories from your early days uh, for hours, but I would love to know, uh, as we're going to wrap up here, are there maybe three books for a young entrepreneur that you would you would give to and say, you know what, it, it, to get ready for the trenches, uh, I'd recommend these? Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, The Purple Cow is a real classic. I, I'm a big fan of Seth Godin. Um, I think he's he's great and he's so easy to listen to and he's so easy to read. Um, so it's the purple cow is one of the first ever books that I read. And it's basically around how do you create product that is remarkable and essentially is its own marketing engine, right? So don't create a product and then promote it, right? Create something that is so out there that makes people do a double take and really allows you to build that onlyness in the product proposition from day one. Two, I think, you know, look, a lot of people judge kind of Silicon Valley's approach, Silicon Valley leadership, and there's certainly a lot of blind spots across the board. But I do think the hard thing about hard things is a great book because, you know, if you listen to how I built this or you read 90% of most uh, autobiographies of, of entrepreneurs and business people, it's like a breathless celebration of how successful they were, right? And look, the, we, we need more vulnerability you know, we need more kind of recognition of, of how hard it is. And there's moments of pain, right? You know, I've read many, many, many books about business. And I think that the hard thing about hard things is the only one that has a chapter called how to fire an executive, right? If you want to, if you need to fire someone, how do you do it? And of course, you're going to have to have phone calls, but like most books don't talk about the level of detail that that one does. So that's a must read for sure. Um, and then, I mean, Shoe Dog is pretty incredible. You know, this the story that Phil Knight writes, and what I love about Shoe Dog is that he is an older man reflecting on his career 30 plus years ago, 
So it's an older man reflecting on a younger man's experience, but now he has the, 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 the hindsight from being that older man. And it's about the founding of Nike, which, you know, Nike started not even with its own brand. It started importing Asics shoes from Japan. Um, and the, the, the story of Nike and, and Phil Knight's telling of that is, is truly incredible. So I think those three books are a great place to start. Yeah, Shoe Dog, one of my all-time favorite reads. Uh, that's that's just exceptional. Yeah. And actually, can I add a fourth? Please do. I I can't get enough. So I got this recommendation about it, you know, a little over a year ago, and I read this book at the beginning of last year. So it's Arnold Schwarzenegger's biography, and it's called Total Recall. Yeah, it's great. And I was like, I was like Arnold Schwarzenegger's biography, like, uh, like I, I don't know, like that's like really. And then I mean, I was gripped. From the first from the first chapter, I was gripped, and then you realize this guy went from being born in a in a village in a house with no running water in allied occupied rural Austria to being the governor of the world's fourth largest economy and the biggest movie star of all time. How does someone go from one from one to the other? This story tells that, and it is it's incredible. Yeah, no, that's that's a great one. Get ready. I mean, that's a behemoth of a book. So for, prepare for a long one there. But that is exceptional. He is truly. Yeah, but it's a pretty fast read. It's a uh, very very easy to read. Yeah, it's great, uh, Scott. This has been awesome. I, I would love to know just one final thing. If you're going to sit down for an evening of conversation, uh, an interview much like this with anyone dead or alive, just not a family member or friend, who would you love spending an evening with? Ooh, um, I would. I would uh, Barack Obama. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I just, I think he's, um, I would love to unpack that guy's mind, right. To love to ask all the questions that you just asked me to someone like him. I find him to be so thoughtful and so measured and simultaneously such an idealist and such a realist at the same time. And also a, a storyteller and a creator. Yeah. Right. So I think that that, you know, he would I think maybe that's like a, a lame one because he's so present. Um, but uh, he, he would be really interesting to, to talk to. Yeah, I think that'd be fascinating. I don't think that's lame at all. Scott, it's yeah. been awesome. Uh, like I mentioned, you're such a deep thinker. Uh, what you built is, is truly remarkable. Uh, we're going to have everything that, that you've built up um, in the past linked up. We're going to have N plus one ventures, your newest investing arm. Anywhere else you want the listeners staying connected with you or things they should explore? Yeah, there's a. Um, there's a there's a nonprofit actually that we're involved in at Sir Kensington's uh, that's based in New York called the High School for Food and Finance, um, and the Food Education Fund is really the nonprofit that's at the core of that. And uh, I do some volunteering there. We do some volunteering as a as a, a company there, um, and it's uh, it's New York City's only public school that does vocational training around culinary and also financial entrepreneurial skills. Um, and 80% of the, the students there come from um, disadvantaged backgrounds uh, and neighborhoods. And I think it's a, it's a fantastic organization with fantastic leadership. And so if you're looking for a place either to give or if you're in New York and you want to volunteer, um, I'll, I'll, let's include a link to that too. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. All that will be linked up. But Scott Norton, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you, Sean. And all, all, honestly, all credit to the team. I'm, I'm so lucky to... Um, to be able to, to sign my name to Sir Kensington's, but really it was everyone that contributed along the way um, that I have to doff my cap to. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. 
I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.